So what we had to do was we had to kick out the tenants, like fund their new housing, rip up the flooring, jackhammer up the concrete, inspect the piping, lay new piping, and then put it all back together, right? And essentially what they said made us realize that everything that we did was not necessary. There were more surgical ways we could have solved the problem, but we didn't. I tried to be too passive and be too deferential to my property manager, right? But no one's going to manage your money like you will manage your money. And so they were like, yeah, you should just jackhammer up all the concrete and lay new PVC pipe. But they didn't care about the zeros behind the price tag because it wasn't theirs. Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings, the number one show about growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. Now, here's your host, Mark Allen Kenny. Hey, everybody. Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings. I'm Mark Allen Kenny. Our guest today is Drew Niffen. How are you doing today, Drew? Good, Mark. Glad to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Drew is a real estate investor and president of Nighthawk Equity. Nighthawk Equity helps investors grow their cash flow and build generational wealth through practical education and high quality investments. Nighthawk Equity currently has over 1,700 units and a portfolio valued at over 70 million. Drew, thank you so much for being on the show today. Could you tell the listeners just a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate? Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Mark. My story is probably pretty similar to most of your listeners. I finished college, finished graduate school, got an MBA and started you know, doing my best in the corporate world. And I was enjoying my job and I also felt a little bit restless in it. And honestly, I was like, man, I was kind of staring down the tunnel out of 30 more years of this. And I was like, I don't, I don't think I love it that much. I didn't have a huge desire to, quote unquote, what do they say, uh, climb the corporate ladder. Like I didn't want to manage a lot of people. I didn't want to put in a ton of hours. And yet I was like, what else is there to do? And so on the side, I had bought, let's see, I, basically two single family homes as rentals. But I never really thought of that as like a, a alternative path. It was just like something to supplement. It was sort of like a hobby. You know, if I threw off a couple hundred dollars in cash each month, that was great as play money, but it was never like an alternative in, until I sold one of them, right? And then I sold one and I was like, wow. Like, and I, at that point, I sort of stopped and thought about what had happened. You know, and basically I bought it in the, you know, kind of the great recession of 2008. Or I'm sorry, I, well, I bought it in 05 and then it went down in value. And when it went down in value is when I, I had been living in it. At the recession, when the properties were at their worst value, I had the option to either sell it or rent it. So from that point until I sold it, it was a couple of years. And in that time, it had recovered its value by about sixty dollars or $70,000. The tenants had paid down the mortgage by $30,000. And there'd been a little bit of cash flow, right? And so instead of selling it and writing a check to cover the, the difference between what it was worth and the mortgage, because it was underwater in value, where I would have had to write a check to pay off the loan. Instead of writing a check for $10,000, I basically got like a, a $90,000 check in sale. And I was like, wow, that was a $100,000 Delta, which is, you know, a big amount of money. I didn't really do anything. <laughs> I mean, I, I found like one good tenant. They stayed there for five years or so. And I just collected their check. I, in fact, it just went, you know, it just ACH. So I didn't do anything. And uh, I was like, well, that kind of beats working 40 hours a week for, you know, this company. And then I just kind of scaled it up from there. I just did a few houses, a few houses. And then honestly, from there, 
you know, a, a pain point that I see a lot of people reach in this industry is they're like, okay, I have eight single family homes, but the bank won't lend to me again. Or even if they would, I don't want the hassle of managing eight different leases and eight different roofs and eight different lawns, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, essentially, long story short, me and two other guys, we bought a 32 unit together. And it was what was incredible is this is after Dodd-Frank, right? So the Dodd-Frank legislation after the 2008-9 crisis made home lending a lot more regulated. And so it's a pain in the butt to get a loan for a single family home. I mean, they just, they just unearth your entire financial life. There's never an end to all the questions they ask. So in contrast, when you, rent it, when you borrowed for this 32 unit, it was like, boom, here's your loan. Mm. <laughs> it was like, I was like, they're giving me more money for more units with less work and it's scalable. So I can turn this over to a property manager and have them do most of the accounting, all of the tenants, termites and trash. And I was like, wow, you know, it, it was, it was an aha moment. And so from there it just scaled up, right? Cause the 32 units at that time felt phenomenally scary. Like, what are we doing? You know, is it crazy? <laughs> and you know, we just went from there. So that was, I mean, what I, the, the, the story that I just told you is probably, let's see here, like 2009 through 2013 or 2014. And then from there, the last five years, I've really tried to got, I've, I've got serious about it. So I've been a full-time real estate investor for five years and it's what I do. Okay. Awesome. So were you self-managing those houses when you first started? Yeah. Yeah. And when you did the 32 unit, you decided to bring on third-party management. That's right. Got yeah. it. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that it was scary. How, how did you make that leap? And it sounds like you partnered with a couple other people. Did you have a mentor or anyone to help you kind of take down that first apartment building? I, I think mentor is too strong of a word, but the two guys that I partnered with are two guys that I trust. And I trust them both, you know, ethically, as far as being uh, honest partners, as well as their intelligence, proficiency, financial sort of awareness, as far as is this a good investment? Do we have a value add plan? Can we make money on this? And so that honestly, it can sound cliche because so many people say this, Mark, on podcasts, but partnering really is the way that I see people break to the next level to sort of push through their ceilings. So for me, doing a 32 unit on my own at that time, I mean, even if I'd had the down payment, which I probably wouldn't have, the idea that I could do that, it just felt like that's what other people do. Like people, it was like people like me do duplexes. That was kind of my you know, people call it a self-limiting belief. I was like, I just don't think I could do that. But when I was with these two guys, one of them, he had quit his full-time job a year or two earlier and started his own property management business. So he managed assets like this for others for a living. He lived, eat, and breathed these things. And he's like, guys, we can do this. This is a fair price. It's a good asset and a good location. And all man or my company will manage it. Right. And so there you had your partner on the one hand, he was wearing an owner hat. On the other hand, he knew he knew himself as the property management company that was managing it. So that alignment uh, took the edge off because we weren't handing over the asset to some unknown party. It was like it was to one of us that owned it. So I mean, nowadays we do hand our assets at Nighthawk off to third-party management, who we vetted and qualified and know from prior assets. But at that time, that was a scary idea for me. But that partnering and those relationships and the alignment of our interests enabled me to sort of jump in on that larger asset. 
Right. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about that a little bit. It, it seems like you were able to get up to around 400 units before even joining Nighthawk. So did you find yourself partnering along the way as you kind of grew your portfolio? Was it the same partners or did you take on new people? How, how did that look like? It was the same group of guys. It's like those same two guys that I did that 32 unit were the core of who I did all the subsequent deals with. And we, at that time, we weren't syndicating. We weren't taking other people's money as a security and then you know selling them and then buying assets. We were just doing partnerships. So me and two guys, me and four guys, me and eight guys, right? We're buying assets. And they were sort of guys that were in the same circle. We were living in the Twin Cities at the time, so Minneapolis, St. Paul. And there's people that we knew. We said, hey, let's do this. Let's, let's get this building. Let's get that building. And like a lot of other things, you know, my partner in Nighthawk Equity is Michael Blanc. And Michael talks about the law of the first deal, which is essentially that like it's a domino that you have to tip over. And once you tip over that first domino, the other things tip over too, you know, in your favor. And, you know, so after we did that 32 unit, then a 55 opened up for us and then a 62 and then a 172 unit property and on and on because the broker community, which hold the, uh, you know, they hold the knowledge of what deals are up for sale. They, they sort of own the, they own the gates that allow you into the castle. And the broker community, once they see you buy a deal, now you're one of the people that, that gets deals closed, which means they get their fee, right? Sure, so just sure. follow the money. And so they start showing you the deals and then you're in the in crowd. And so, yeah, that's how we did the first 400 units. Uh, it was all through partnering. So I didn't own them 100% myself. There wasn't a single asset other than one or two of the single families that I owned all myself. And it goes to the whole idea of, would you rather have, you know, whatever, 100% of a small pie or 10% of a big pie? You know, and it, it basically partnering is how you grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the transition to Nighthawk a little bit. So you've got 400 units and then how did you get involved with Nighthawk in the first place? Yeah. So a long time ago, my partner, Michael Blanc, had been doing a lot of free content, like writing articles on, on apartment building investing in bigger pockets. And so at that time I was reading bigger pockets and there's, there's, there's this universe of people that are flipping homes. There's this universe of people that are wholesaling homes. There's this universe of people that are doing duplexes of the burst strategy. And I always liked apartment buildings the best. It just, it, it seemed like it was the smartest strategy to me. And he was writing on that. That was his niche. And so I would follow him and his content was, you know, thoughtful. There's some other people that wrote, I would call it more fluffy or superficial stuff, but his stuff was thoughtful. So I was following it. And then I, I bought his syndicated deal analyzer, which I, I think Mark, you said that you did. Yeah, I use it as well. And, and I was like, you know, I, and at that time I worked in um, investment banking. So my life was spreadsheets. And so I knew what a good spreadsheet looked like. And I knew that I could make my own spreadsheet to analyze apartment buildings, but it would take a lot of hours. <laughs> and so I bought Michael's. I'm like, hey, this is good. It's substantive. It's thorough. It's thoughtful. It's, it has integrity in how the numbers flow. And so when I used it to buy that 32 unit, I just wrote him an email and I was like, hey, I just bought this 32 unit. I used your SDA. It was really helpful. I just wanted to say thanks. Figuring he'd never write back. And then he did write back. He's like, oh, that's really cool. You're like, you want to be on my podcast? And that was my first ever podcast. Nice. I was like, sure. So I joined the podcast and then we just hit it off. We just emailed back and forth at that time. Uh, it was very organic. There was no agenda. Like, I don't even know there was a possibility of some kind of future. At that time, Nighthawk ed- Equity literally didn't exist. It was a year before it existed. Um, so we just hit it off just, you know, talking. And then we decided to meet up at a real estate conference in Houston that year together and have meals together and talk. And we did. And 
it just went on from there, right? So that's, again, it was, it was partnering, right? It was me and Michael partnering without some sort of agenda. It wasn't, what can I get from him or him thinking, what can he get from me necessarily? It was just bantering back and forth over email about ideas and building rapport and trust. And then things did come from it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, that's interesting. So I know, I guess, when were, were you a part of that launch then? Or did Michael launch and then, and then see if you wanted to be involved after the fact? With Nighthawk? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yes and no. Nighthawk came out of a realization, first, the business was coaching and mentoring, right? So people wanted to get coached. They wanted to get mentored on how to do apartment buildings. So we were doing that. And then we realized that one of the biggest choke points in people actually buying apartment buildings, you know, they'd find a good deal. And it made sense on a, on a spreadsheet. But then the actual mechanics for how to close the deal, do the due diligence, and especially raise the money was stopping people from doing deals. So we're like, well, we can, we can solve that. Like, let's create an, a, a, an organization that basically does that. And we'll partner with those people. So they find the deal, we'll give them some ownership. And then we, who are doing this stuff full time, essentially, who have done many deals before, we'll show them the ropes. And so that, that's how it got started. I was not a part of the first, I think it was three deals. And I took over on deal, deal number four. And we just completed deal number 15 a week ago today. And so, so I've been a part of, whatever, 90% of the journey, but I, I was not on the, the the original launch. Yeah. Awesome. And then when it comes to kind of your investment strategy, are you guys focused on specific markets and business plans and asset classes? Or is it the type of thing where, you know, if a student that you trust that you've worked with before brings you a deal in their market, you know, they feel confident that it's a value add and and, and they can turn around a property. Are you, would you jump in on a, on a, on any type of project like that? Or do you have specifics that you look for when, when people bring you deals? We have become more disciplined and more focused as time has gone on. So originally it kind of was any deal that underwrites well in any market where it basically makes sense, let's try it out together. It was a little bit more like that. I don't want to be too cavalier. But then as time goes on, we've just figured, you know, that it's one thing to buy four assets in four different markets. It's another thing to oversee them for five years. And to go visit them and to keep tabs on the property managers. And so over time, we realized the complexity of being in too many different asset classes and too many different geographies, et cetera. So, so that has narrowed our focus. And so right now, we're looking at assets that I would say are between $15 and $25 million purchase prices in major metropolitan markets that are growing in the Southeast that are, I would call it C plus to B level assets. So that the definition of that is not crystal clear, but one way to look at it is year of build. And I would say 1970, 1970 to 1985. And that has a big value add component where there's, there's sort of a proven way to add value and uh, appreciation on the assets. So that's, that's what we're looking for right now at the company. Yeah. Awesome. And then have you changed it all this year with COVID and everything going on? Or I mean, have you been less aggressive with acquisitions or, or even kind of the business plans that you guys are trying to implement this year? Well, we haven't been less aggressive, but in a sense, we've been less successful. And uh, I just did some research and thinking about this last week with regard to 2020 and the acquisitions we bought. And, and if you look at the number of deals that have, have transacted in 2020, it's way down volume wise from past years. And there's at least a couple of reasons for that. Number one, people are like, they're scared. People don't do things when there's an unknown in front of them. And so 2020 has been a big unknown. So that's one basic reason. 
But the other basic reason is for those of us that still want to acquire assets, that think that we can adjust our underwriting accordingly, it's still hard to do deals for a number of reasons. Number one, rent growth or rent you know, appreciation has zeroed out. In fact, rent growth nationally in this year is negative 1%, whereas nationally in the prior two years, it was 3% and 2%. So it's a big change. And for anyone that understands you know, finance and the time value of money, nothing matters more in your investment than the first year's performance, right? It's really hard to make up for a bad first year because this year matters more than year three, year five. And so as buyers, we need to basically take that reality into account in our, in our analysis of the deal and basically be willing to pay less, right? Because we know that rent growth for the short term is lower than it would have been COVID notwithstanding. So that's number one. But number two is the interesting thing about COVID is when it started happening in March, when the WHO declared a pandem- global pandemic, we were all stress testing our models thinking, you know, what happens if economic vacancy is 30%, 35%? You know, yeah. what deal, like, when can I not make the mortgage payment anymore? And that essentially, though, fortunately, those fears were not, they did not transpire, right? Like we have not had a huge inability of tenants to pay. There was the CARES Act, which put a lot of money in people's pockets. And despite the fact that unemployment has been pretty high, tenants by and large have paid and delinquency hasn't gone up too much. So the reason that matters is because sellers or owners of properties are like, you know what, by, by golly, my tenants are still paying. So I expect the same price for a sale post-COVID as I did pre-COVID. That's the mindset of sellers, right? So on the one hand, collections are down. I'm sorry, uh, rent growth is down, but collections have been constant. So those are, those are two factors. The third one is banks are much less aggressive. They're willing to lend less and on more onerous terms. So interest rates aren't higher. They have gone down, but the lender reserves that the government agencies require, so like uh, 12-month interest reserves, has dampened your investment. Or if you wanted to go to a bridge loan product, bridge loans have basically all dried up. Bridge loans are very attractive. So you at least have those three factors, like rents have been going down, but collections have been good. And so there's a, there's a mismatch between buyers and sellers as far as what the expectations are. And then the lenders further complicate the situation by giving you different lending terms. And the result is, even for those of us that want to buy deals, it's very hard to find deals that make sense right now. So I, you know, we've, we've done fewer deals this year. Our first deal, the entire year, we closed... I think at the end of September. So it was like nine months of nothing. And that was a little bit hard on the organization, but you don't want to buy deals that you're not confident about. And it was hard to have confidence in deals in 2020. Right, right. That makes sense. And then moving forward, do you see that kind of uh, opening up in the future where people, I mean, do you expect people to transact more next year or kind of what are you projecting as far as uh, Nighthawk's strategy next year? Yeah, well, the general answer is yes, right? Like it would be, it'd be amazing if 2021 was as unexpected as 2020 was. <laughs> I sure hope it's not. Sure. <laughs> and yeah, so I think that people will, you know, basically acclimate and in general markets find a clearing price, right? So eventually that will happen. Sellers will want to sell, buyers will want to buy, they'll find a way as long as this new wave of COVID or something else doesn't really throw us for a loop. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I don't think that any second wave can be as shocking as the initial 
onslaught of COVID in the spring of the year. So I, I think it'll normalize. That's my, my short answer. Yeah, got it, got it. So I, I find it interesting that, you know, you're trying to get deals done, you know, things have been kind of, uh, it's a, such an odd year. And it's, it's, I agree, it's been tough to uh, find deals that make sense. When you're underwriting deals, is there a certain IRR or cash on cash return that you're trying to hit for your investors? Or what's kind of the, the typical metrics that you're trying to hit for your passive investors? Uh, you know, it's interesting. When I talk to people that have been in the industry a long time, they'll talk about the deals that they could buy in 20, you know, 11, 12, and they had phenomenal IRRs because the assets were cheap. But assets have been increasing in price significantly recently. And as they've risen in price, the realistic IRRs that you can get have been coming down. And I think I've, we've seen that in our industry, us and our peers. We see people writing IRRs that are just, if you want to write them conservatively and to numbers that you believe you can deliver on, the numbers are coming down a little bit. So we, think, we see things at like 13, 14% IRRs realistically. And we think we can hit those. But when I see people that are projecting high teens or low 20s, I really want to kind of get underneath their, their analysis and understand what assumptions they're making. It would not be hard for me to change a few assumptions on our models and get those numbers. But it's one thing to put it in a spreadsheet. It's nothing to deliver on it. You know, one of my favorite lines from Warren Buffett was, <laughs> he simply said, beware of nerds with calculators. <laughs> which means like anyone that gets too in love with their spreadsheets and sort of too in love with the way that numbers flow can sort of delude themselves into believing that there's always a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and life is messier than spreadsheets. And so when I, when I see those high IRRs, listen, maybe they just found a phenomenal deal and I didn't find it and I tip my hat to them, but more realistically, I think, Goodness, I wonder if they're just assuming that rent growth will be three and a half percent every year for the next 10 years on that asset, you know, or they'll refinance and get an 85% leverage or, you know, whatever, whatever optimistic terms, it'll help you sell it if you want to try to, you know, raise money, but then good luck delivering on it. So, yeah, I think that's, that's where we find ourselves in our underwriting right now. Okay. And then is there a typical hold period that you like to see to uh, hit that IRR? Well, our basic hold period is five. Okay. A five-year hold, but we'll flex that, you know, down to three sometimes or up to seven. So it depends, but we, we, we sort of baseline our numbers around five. That way, that way I can compare this deal to the prior deal I looked at or the deal I looked at two months ago. And it's, it's sort of apples to apples on a five-year hold basis. It's that time of the show for a segment called Best Deal, Worst Deal, where we talk about real estate transactions that you've done in the past so that others can learn from your knowledge and expertise. So Drew, with that said, what's the best real estate deal that you've done? Man, best deal that I've done. Let's see here. Well, there's one that's not completed right now. I mean, it's, it's not, it hasn't gone full cycle, but it sure is looking phenomenal. Just it was 276 units down in the Southeast in a, in a strongly growing market. And we should a complete exterior overhaul of the asset. It just looks a lot different, right? So, and there's an awesome management team on there. So because of all those dynamics, you have phenomenal demographic growth in the submarket. You have the size of the asset, which helps with economies of scale. It's 276 units and great management team. It's just, it's like, I think if we could sell it today, we've owned it for about 12 months, we could double or triple people's money, right? I mean, it's just, I, I have to do the math, but it's been more successful than we ever dared it would be. And it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. Do you have any advice for other operators to find a deal like that? 
Well, well, I mean, on that one deal, so so in general, right? In general, we don't like to put down hard earnest money because, well, for a lot of reasons, and I don't want to get, I won't drag it down. We don't like to do it. But on this deal, we did. And the reason we did is because it went out of contract from a prior buyer and the seller got burned by losing it out of contract. And so when it, when it came back up to market, we won the deal versus another potential buyer because we put up hard earnest money, right? So they actually took a half a million dollars less on our contract than the next buyers because we were putting up hard earnest money. So the lesson there is, um, you could say the lesson is put up hard earnest money, but the better lesson is be aware of the prior story of the deal and what the seller is sensitive to. And that got us that deal that's been really great. Awesome. Yeah, I like that. That's great advice. And Drew, what would you say is the worst real estate deal that you've done? The worst deal that I did was a duplex here in Seattle. And the reason that it was the worst was, was not because it was in Seattle or because it was a duplex, but what it was actually like an hour away on the other side of the water. And we had a plumbing issue, right? So like the, it was a concrete foundation and the plumbing ran through the concrete and it was degrading. So the water was seeping out everywhere. So what we had to do was we had to kick out the tenants, like fund their new housing, rip up the flooring, jackhammer up the concrete, inspect the piping, lay new piping, and then put it all back together, right? And it was just me and one other guy. So it wasn't like a syndication, but the total cost was like 60 or $70,000. It was phenomenally expensive. And then at the end of it, at the very end, we did like a walkthrough of it. And our property manager said something and we're like, wait, what was that? And essentially what they said made us realize that everything that we did was not necessary. There were more surgical ways we could have solved the problem, but we didn't. Wow. <laughs> and actually, I didn't dig into it even more because it hurt my brain so much to do it. So the lesson there, twofold, I think I would say, number one, these homes were all built right during World War II, and they were built to be kind of like, they were not built for the long term. They were built to address the short-term housing needs of the military to build ships. So it was an old asset that was never meant to be the sole. So maybe it's don't buy old assets or be really careful about your inspections. But number two, the big mistake I had was I tried to be too passive and be too deferential to my property manager, right? But no one's going to manage your money like you will manage your money. And so they were like, yeah, you should just jackhammer up all the concrete and lay new PVC pipe. But they didn't care about the zeros behind the price tag because it wasn't theirs. And... I got bailed out. That investment, I still made money on that one because the market was growing so much, the value of the asset was, but it was just a, a giant headache. So that was certainly one of the worst ones, if not the worst. Wow. Wow. What, what's the number one thing that you learned from that deal moving forward? Would you not buy assets you know, that are a certain vintage or what's kind of the number one lesson that you took away from that? Well, you know, one of the... so. I bought four duplexes. That was one of four, right? And the other ones were doing pretty well on a financial basis, but they still took up time in my mind, right? So on the one hand, I have like a hundred unit property over here and then I have a duplex over there and they're both taking up, call it six hours a month of my time. So even if they're both giving, giving me like a 16% IRR or whatever, good returns, you know, a 16% IRR on a hundred unit is a much more worthwhile thing to think about than a 16% IRR on a two unit. Right. And so one lesson there was don't mismatch your time. Right. So if your time is worth something, work on assets that are like the, the right size for you. So on those other three ones that were even, even performing well financially, we sold them because we were like, we don't want to deal with this. I just call it brain damage. It's just, I don't want to get phone calls from property managers 
talking about forty unit $40 decisions. I want to talk to property managers about $4,000 decisions. And so at some like they were still good to buy when I bought them. But as time went on, it's like a pair of clothes for a six-year-old. They fit you well when you're six, but then when you're seven or eight, they don't fit very well anymore. <laughs> and you got to get rid of those pants and get some new pants. And uh, that's, that's sort of like the experience I had on those duplexes. Yeah. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Drew, we're almost out of time here, but I'd love to ask just one final question. If a passive investor is interested in working with you, Nighthawk Equity, what's the best first step for that person to get involved? Yeah, you should jump onto our website, www.nighthawkequity.com slash join. And if you go to that website, uh, nighthawkequity.com slash join, you can book a time to talk to our team and make sure that we're a fit for you, that you're a fit for us, ask us questions and uh, go forward from there. So we'd love to have you join our organization. And that's, that's the best thing you can do. Awesome. And then Drew, if, if someone's interested in, in uh, connecting with you and learning more about what you're up to, what's the best place for that? Email is drew at nighthawkequity.com. Yep. Awesome. Happy to speak. Cool. Well, Drew, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. You too, Mark. Good talking to you. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Allen Kenny. If you're interested in apartment building investments, schedule a call with me so we can have a chance to chat. My company is focused on growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. So let's hop on a quick call and talk about your investment goals and see if we're a good fit. Find out more at StellarInvestmentGroup.com.